Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. At this point, I've become quite accustomed to doing interviews virtually over Zoom or whatever chat service people use these days. But every now and then, I get to do an episode in person, and those are always a lot of fun. And this episode's guest, uh, Luke Wesley, is someone that I got to sit on the couch at uh, Detox Manor, Detox Studios, and we got to talk. And uh, Luke is a musician by trade, um, plays multiple instruments, he sings. And uh, he's also a carpenter, not one of the carpenters, but a carpenter. And he's got an interesting story. Uh, We talk about, you know, he grew up with, uh, as one of six boys, which is kind of a crazy house. It has to be, right? If you think about it. Uh, Grew up in the Midwest, studied to be a pastor, um, which is a trip that I, I, I... love that I get to get more into here because it's not something that it's not a calling that I understand particularly well um more importantly he talks about growing up and relationships and depression and getting help and uh it's a really interesting story I hope to have Luke back again and talk and uh, you also get to hear how he punched out a racist as a bartender and maybe he feels a little bit of regret about it I don't know if he should anyway here's Luke I'm Luke Wesley, and I am a musician and a carpenter, which is what really pays my bills. I moved to New York almost 20 years ago from music, and I spent a lot of time playing music and touring the, the U.S. and Europe, and put out a couple albums. It's been a minute, but <laughs> yeah, that's basically me in a nutshell. Carpentry pays my bills, and... Yeah, music feeds a, a different creative side of me. All right. Have you always been a musician? Or have you always been interested in music as a profession or a vocation or an outlet, whatever it purpose it serves for you? I took piano lessons for about nine months when I was in, like, fourth grade. And when you... But playing piano in elementary school, at least in the 80s, was just gay. And that's the way everybody called it. If you were playing drums or guitar, that was cool. But piano was like this chore. And I was from the sticks, so nobody was learning violin, but maybe they would have been looked at the same way. But then by the time you get to high school, now they're like, hey, you can play this instrument. That's really cool. And that's then the way it is the rest of your life. You just have to get out of 
the period of time where everybody is terrified and lashing out at each other, <laughs> just trying not to be othered themselves. Sure. And so I took that little bit of piano lessons, but I really didn't mess around with the piano much again until I was a freshman in high school. And at that point, I met a guy while doing high school theater who had taught himself to play piano, and I was like, I want to do that. There wasn't ever really a thought of like, how do you do that? Or like, can I do that? It was, well, yeah, I'm going to do that. He did it. So how hard can it be? Right. <laughs> so I just started teaching myself to play piano pretty much as a function of writing music. So each song was this chance to kind of try and do something different with this instrument. And I had this little brief period of time where my older brother had played fish for me and or maybe not for me, but I was in the room while he was playing it. And when I learned about those guys, and I was like, man, these guys all have, like, doctorates and music and stuff. This is so cool. And then I found God, like, really hardcore. And then I felt like I, I had a calling to be a pastor. And so instead I went to college and I majored in religion and philosophy with the eventual goal of going to seminary and get my Master's of Divinity and becoming a pastor. And I, I mean, I should have seen it the whole time I was in college. Some would be like, oh, what's your major? I'm like, I'm religion. And it would always be like, oh, like a music pastor or like, oh, like a youth pastor. Nobody ever looked at me and was like, oh, you're going to be the lead pastor speaking. <laughs> Nobody could see me in that leadership role. It just wasn't what came to their mind. That opens up so many questioning doors for me. <laughs> what was it that drew you into saying hey i want to be a pastor and also i feel like i don't know too many people and this is just kind of my ignoramus new yorker talking i guess i don't know too many people who decided that they want to go into being a, a pastor in their not later years necessarily but like on the verge of adulthood so i'm curious what you saw or what happened to you that provided that spark well i grew up in the church my whole family was evangelical christians and i i don't mean like specifically my immediate family although yes but spread out through the whole family my grandfather on my dad's side was a methodist pastor my uncle on my dad's side was a methodist pastor my father died in a car accident when i was one but he was a methodist pastor and so there have been jokes made between my brothers and I that it was kind of the family business. My grandfather was a very well-known member of the Methodist clergy in Ohio. And when he passed about a year after I moved to New York, there was a blurb in the National Methodist newsletter about his passing. And so I was always in the church. If they were washing the windows on Thursday, we had a front row seat. We were just always at the church and always involved in... My parents were always really involved with the youth group. And so I grew up around it. And I'd gone away to this convention called Acquire the Fire. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it's this big, like, worship convention with speakers all throughout the the couple of days of it. It's also fun because you're in high school and you get to go and stay in hotel rooms with right. all your friends. Right. And I came back from that convention and was just like... All right, I'm going to be a pastor. And prior to that, I'd had this idea of being a musician. And that was probably like sophomore year of 
high school that I decided that I was going to be a pastor. Because also, I don't find it to be that late in life because it's also high school where we're all being shouldered with this responsibility as a child to figure out what we want to do with the rest of our life. Right. Because if you don't decide soon, then it'll be too late and you'll never be able to do anything with your life. And, and that's asinine. Yeah. It's asinine to expect a kid to choose something that they're going to love for the rest of their life when they barely know how to tie their shoes. But also the idea that if you don't do it now, you'll never be able to do anything is like, I didn't start doing carpentry professionally until a couple of years ago. And I didn't really start playing around with it until like 10 years ago as a hobby in my backyard and started gathering tools. So at the age of 38, I started doing carpentry professionally. So the idea that you've got to do something at 18 or you'll never be able to do it, I mean, that can apply to some things like the entertainment world. Right. But also in the entertainment world, frankly, you needed to start a lot younger than 18. You needed to have parents that were basically pushing you through it as a kid right. so that by the time you were 18, you were ready to take the bull by its horns. But most things, you can come around to them later. And, I mean, I will say that I've regularly gravitated towards creating things and making things. And people who make things just don't generally get paid very well. <laughs> that is true. The people who, who build the things and make the things that we all use and possibly love and appreciate are not the ones who ever make the money. It's the people who sell those things to you that make the money, or maybe the people who design them make the money as well, at a very high level at least. And I've just come to accept it. I'm not going to die rich. I'm okay with it because I like working with my hands and I like making things. And I mean, would you rather die rich or die fulfilled? I mean... I think everybody would be like, that would be cool if I got both. But yeah. I'd also like to not die with neither. And if it's got to be one or the other, fulfilled. But I will also say that I got 99 problems and most of them are related to finance. To, I mean, that is an unfortunate <laughs> circumstance of being an American and living in a capitalist society. Yeah. Not to put my tinfoil hat on, but... Money is kind of used as a way to control you, keep you from sometimes achieving the things that you want. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, I don't know. It's a whole thing. We're not going to go on that sidetrack. <laughs> but I just find it interesting that I don't know a whole lot of people who have been tempted to go into the clergy. And I feel like the people that I've read about or the people that I, I, I am familiar with were really, really young when they had the calling or whatever it is. And like you said, also, I think family plays a big part in that. And one thing that I actually found out when you were on the Talking Schmidt podcast, that aside from losing your dad at a very young age, you have enough brothers to make, y'all could have been the Jacksons. Yeah, we didn't all play music. My oldest brother played guitar and he, he leads worship at his church and his wife sings with him and his whole family is very involved in their church. And then my next two brothers, even though like, all four of us older kids. There's six of us total. That's insane. For, for those who are listening. <laughs> the first four are we like from my father, and then the next two are from my stepfather and our half-brothers. But we don't ever look at it that way. It's just six boys, and we don't really distinguish between the, the 
two sectors, I suppose. But all four of us older brothers were all in band and whatnot. But really, my oldest brother was more musically inclined than I was. And then the next brother after me is a drummer who lives in Nashville. And then the youngest brother also played around with instruments, but is much more visually inclined than auditorially okay. inclined. He's a very talented videographer and director, but music's not the thing. But still, to have that much creativity in one family, what's the age spread? 16 years from the oldest to the youngest. So I guess there was a point, at least a short while, where there were all six living in yeah, the same place at a, the same time. A brief year or two where we were all still under the same roof. And then slowly college filtering out and right. out of the house and whatnot. I mean, this is probably a question for your mom, but what was that like? <laughs> Just have all of this masculine energy. Chaos. And this is something that I, I think plays really big part in general of all of it was that my father dying when I was one affected even my younger brothers who weren't born yet and weren't even an idea yet. How so? Well, the grief from my father's death was never dealt with. And that kind of poisoned the well and led to a, a household of men that even harder time. I think that, frankly, between religion and that grief that had sort of poisoned the well, I think that we all had a very hard time expressing emotion and feelings. And most often, depending on the brother, it came out in either suppressing or, like, raging. So a lot of holes in walls that had to be patched by my stepfather. Just a lot of anger. Sure. And just emotions that we didn't understand being thrown around. I mean, every single person in my family should have been in therapy in the early 80s, but that just wasn't a thing that people were doing back then. Absolutely right. <laughs> there was a lot of things that we all needed to figure out. My oldest brother is a therapist. Oh, wow. Now, and he, even he himself has been going to therapy and has learned a lot about himself and is a very, very different person, I feel, in the last... 10, 15 years of his life than he was before that. I mean, he's not like a totally different person, but just like how he interacts and how he speaks. And he has two absolute beautiful people for children who are incredibly sweet and much better adjusted than I feel any of us were. Um, and I think in in no small part, it's his wife, who is probably the best thing that ever happened to him. Sure. And I, I think has done a very good job over the years of exercising more patience than she should have had to. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I suppose that that's what good partners do. Yeah, yeah. Speaking specifically to you, Grief is a hard thing to process, I think, under the best of circumstances. And you were a baby when you lost your dad. Uh, do you feel like you still have stuff to process from that? You... Well, I mean, that's the thing is that I don't really have any grief to process from my father's death 
directly because I don't have any memories of it. It didn't affect me directly. All of the effects were indirect, were coming from the people who were there for it. Right and hadn't processed it. Maybe I'm telling tales out of school here, but I do remember maybe in the first year that I lived in New York and I was talking to my oldest brother on the phone and he was just saying how he remembered when, after my father passed and that he was riding in the car with my father's sister and her family. They were riding together and they had a bunch of kids that were kind of spread out like we were as okay. well and he was in the car and their oldest son said something about are you going to school on monday or something like that and my brother was like well yeah and my cousin was like man i, I don't know how you can do that I, I could never do that and my brother said he just remembers having this feeling of like is is something wrong with me mm. i hadn't even thought about this being an issue and i just think that that shock of what has happened things had just not landed yet and have you seen the movie hereditary i have not oh man well i'm not gonna bring that up okay <laughs> should i because <laughs> oh man that movie's amazing it's a wild movie it's a great movie and there's a 10 minute segment in the middle of it that is just a really horrific moment where for like 10 minutes you are just gutted and shocked and it revolves around like an accident and the person who's committed the accident just kind of goes home afterwards because they're in such shock and just goes to bed and doesn't sleep just lays in their bed all night but is just in shock and this is the beginning of finding a therapist in theory (laughs) right but like Unfortunately, it's not what happens. And so I think that for my older brother, I think that it was this similar thing in that moment of still in shock from what has happened and not even thinking about the fact that he shouldn't go to school. But for somebody else on the outside of it, looking in, it's easy for them to be like, man, I don't think I could ever do that because they're removed from it. Even though they knew this person, they're still removed from it. Yeah. And the point of therapy is perspective outside of your own head because otherwise you do just get into a point where you're going through the motions and you haven't dealt with any of the things that you need to deal with and i don't know i don't know i don't know if therapy is something that you need to go to forever sure but i do think that most people have a hard time keeping the ability to find that perspective and so it does end up being something that like a lot of people need to just spend They need to have somebody that they can just go to and talk to so that that person can be like, well, you're full of shit. (laughs) Everything you're saying right now in your head is not real. Like, It's super important. And I I try to tell that to people both through this podcast and just kind of in regular life because I think the process of having a therapist, for some people, it's for a particular moment in time. And maybe it's something you come back to periodically. For some other people, and I think I'm, I'm one of those people, I need a therapist constantly. Mm-hmm. Not only because there's still so much shit that I'm unpacking from back in the day, yeah. but because there's stuff that I'm unpacking on a regular basis. And some of that is just culturally, I think, for me, being being black and being not straight. But I also think the world is crazy and... 
it's nice to have an unbiased person to just be like, yo, what you are thinking is actually kind of based in reality, so you shouldn't feel like you're a weirdo for yeah. having the thoughts that you have in your head. Yeah, because otherwise, like, especially with social media and whatnot, but it's always been this way. People halfway around the world that you're comparing yourself to on social media it would have been your neighbors. I think that to some degree there's a little bit of natural hardwiring in our brain that makes us see other things and think like, well, why am I not like that or whatever? The grass is always greener on the, on other, the other side. side man. I used to say this when I was in a relationship for a long time, that you walk down the street and you see woman and a man at the corner and they're kissing and you're looking at it and you're like man why doesn't my girlfriend ever kiss me like that (laughs) and it's so easy to see this sliver the moment yeah and this was the way i always finish that phrase is that the grass is always greener on the other side because you only see it through the slats of the fence and so in those little gaps you see that green patch but you don't see all the brown that's over in the corner you don't see that stuff and so it's so easy to compare yourself to somebody in this one little moment. But also, for all I know, she fucking stabbed that guy two days ago. Right. And they're insane. And I have no idea what that relationship looks like. Yeah, man. <laughs> they could have had a loud screaming argument yesterday. They could be having this passionate kiss and either partner could be going out to be unfaithful. Yeah. What you see is curated for that particular yeah. moment. And that's always the important thing. And people are saying this more and more, and I've been saying it for a while with social media. Everything is, it's so curated. This isn't real life. Right. In the same way that when I write a song, I'm not super interested in playing that song for somebody until it's done. Because I don't want them to hear earlier versions of the lyrics and whatnot. I want them to hear the curated, finished thing. And social media is just always giving somebody the most polished version of this aspect of your life and then you just don't post about the parts that you can't polish polish. (laughs) i think the case for most people i think some people actually kind of like publishing the unpolished shit sure that's a, a a rarity i think i like i bartended for a long time and bartended in bushwick for a long time here in brooklyn and i met a lot of people during that time and i will say that a lot of these people that I know from Bushwick who are much more open about all of these sorts of things like I'll see them post things in their stories or something on Instagram about being a hot mess of a mental wreck and all this stuff and I'm like (laughs) I appreciate that you're doing this I'm not going to do it it's not what I use Instagram for but I appreciate that you're just like yeah I exist. Right. As a mess. Take it or leave it. (laughs) You know, there's power in that, man. And and relatability because we're all hot messes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the first step to kind of clearing up your hot mess-age a little bit is acknowledging the fact that you are a hot mess. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think there's some power in that. So how old were you when you moved to New York? 22. And what was the impetus behind you coming out here from... Oh, you grew up in Ohio, right? Yeah. Okay. So I was, like, living just outside of Columbus. And this was, like, just after college. And I was putting together money to move into Columbus. Was probably going to, like, move into a house with a buddy of mine from college. Some other people, possibly. And start really doing music in Columbus. Because it was like, you can do music anywhere. And this was before the internet. 
had become such an integral piece of the music industry yeah and and so i was like i'm gonna move into columbus and i'll do this and this is like 2003 2004 and i was just getting burnt out i was working as a bank teller at a regional bank and not loving life and just feeling like i was always trying to tread water and one night this woman that i knew from college we were talking on aol instant messenger oh aol instant messenger yes that dinosaur (laughs) and uh she lived in nashville and she was like when are you gonna move to nash vegas and usually she'd ask me this i'd be like never i don't want to move to nashville and then she asked me that night and i was just like honestly if i had a place to live and a job i'd see you tomorrow i'm over it And later that night, I was taking a shower, and I was thinking about it, and my older brother had just moved to New York like a month prior. So the next day, I called him up and was like, can I... I would have hopped in my car and driven there that day if he'd said yes, because I was like, we're doing this. (laughs) Gotta get the fuck out of here. And he was like, all right. He lived with his then-girlfriend, now-wife, and he was like, okay, well, let me talk to my girlfriend about this. Let me get back to you. Sure. And so he calls me a couple of days later and he's like, yeah, it's cool. We think that you need to save up some money and stuff. And so like two months later, after a buddy of mine from college's wedding, I literally had packed all of my stuff up in my car, driven up to the wedding for the weekend, and then went to my parents and my mom drove me out to New York in the family van. And I moved here with what I thought was a lot of money. Oh, boy. All right. How, how much Cause money I was Because I was thinking about, like, if I'm moving into Columbus, what my portion of the rent is, and, like, having, like, a few months' rent ready. And so I had, like, $950. Whoa. And no job. Oh, um, man. And I definitely got to a point by the time I finally got a job, which was at TGI Fridays on Times Square. <laughs> and I finally got to, like, my last day of training at that job, and I had, like, $2 to my name and probably, I don't know, seven or $8,000 in credit card debt. Not that I'd accrued all of that in the previous couple of months, but I was just an idiot. And... I had this like $2 and that was all I had left basically. And then I started waiting tables and eventually started bartending in neighborhood bars and whatnot and I'd gotten the music scene and all that jazz. But yeah, I mean, what a dumb kid. <laughs> <laughs> but your dumb kidness still has you here 20 years later. Yeah, I mean, I'm stubborn also. <laughs> that's, that's a positive attribute sometimes. <laughs> Ain't nothing wrong with being stubborn. I, I gotta ask, coming from a small town in Ohio to New York City, what was the worst or the most culture shocky moment making that transition? I don't know, because while I was a conservative Christian, and I did, I voted for Bush the first time. We all make you know, mistakes. I was, I was 18, 19 years old. But I think my curiosity for life and the always wanting to look into things deeper and figure out why or how they were working made it so that even though I was a conservative Christian, I was still in college would have conversations with people about when you're going out and witnessing and trying to get people to come into the church and whatnot 
that one of my things is that you can't use the Bible to logically argue somebody over to Christianity because it isn't a historical text, even though you believe it to it's be. Right. It is still a piece of your religion that you're trying to use as a logical thing, and so it ends up being a logical fallacy. And so I was always trying to like find a better way of looking at things. And so when I moved here, I was still a Christian at the time, but Jesus wasn't walking around spitting on the prostitutes and the tax collectors and whatnot. He was hanging out with them. Right. And so my thing was still just that I don't necessarily agree with all of these things, but I, at the same time, they're not bad people because they're gay or... I mean, honestly, that was probably one of the things that I barely encountered before moving to New York was homosexuality. Right. And it was something that was actually the easiest thing to accept. <laughs> it was one of the things that very early on in New York was like, yeah, I mean, who cares? Right, who gives a shit? And that <laughs> is one of my biggest things. I also grew up in a, certainly a socially conservative environment and having to kind of figure that out in myself was difficult. But with 40-something years of logic and obviously practice now, it's kind of like, okay, even if it ain't for you, there's lots of things that aren't for me. I don't feel, for example, like I am the wrong gender. I've always felt like a guy, but if someone else doesn't feel like they belong in the gender that they were assigned to, how can I say that that's illogical just because I haven't had that experience? Yeah. So I think it just kind of takes that framing to really get like a better understanding of, okay, well, different things work for different people. Yeah. Hmm. That's the thing is that you have to be able to just step outside of yourself for a moment and say that like experience is not the only experience right and it's like that with literally everything everything i mean even when i was bartending i came to this point where it's just like you live in this world you're a bartender you're in bars all the time especially as a bartender and a musician this is in bars like seven nights a week and so for me this is my playground I know exactly how every toy on this playground and structure on this playground works. I've had a lot of fun in this playground. But for a lot of people, they go out drinking like maybe once a week, right. maybe once or twice a month, right. maybe even less often. And so when they go out to the bar, they have no idea necessarily how this is supposed to work. And bartenders get pretty angry with people about the tipping thing, which on one hand is fair because it's how bartenders get paid. But on the other hand, tipping is fucking stupid. <laughs> and we like the fact that we've gotten to this point where restaurants and bars don't have to pay their employees. And it's the same thing as like we add the tax on after the price. Like, it's all about making people think that the product is going to be cheaper than it really is. Yeah. It's back to the, the, the fallacies of capitalism. <laughs> but the problem with tipping is that you can't go into a place and spend 10 bucks on a thing and then just be like, oh, no, that's all right. I'm not paying the tax. But with tipping, you can go in and buy a drink and then be like, oh, no, that's all right. I'm not paying the tip. And I, I was so angry and frustrated about it for so long. And then I got to this point where I just came to understand that never attribute to malice what's more easily explained by stupidity. Mm. And 
when you're encountering somebody in your world, that person doesn't understand how your world works. And to just be angry at them for not understanding how that world works is, is its own short-sighted and ignorant way of living. And if you extrapolate that to larger and much more meaningful things, white people have spent a lot of time getting really angry at minorities for not knowing how to move in their white world. And you've got two options here. Well, three options. <laughs> the first one is you can get angry and think that they're all just idiots who don't understand anything at all. Or you can try and take them under your wing and educate them on how this world works. Or, and this is the more progressive way to look at it, is accept that they're different people and that they move through the world differently. Yeah. And that's the big thing. There are just different cultures and different ways that they function and we don't all have to live in the same city or country and behave exactly the same because also oh, how boring how would boring would be? it be absolutely i mean it's already boring that everybody wants to be a professional musician <laughs> <laughs> so we're just in this place where like everybody wants to do the same thing all the time and the people who don't want to do the same thing are somehow weird and crazy and it's like no it's not weird and crazy to not want to go sit at a desk for 45 hours a week or 70 hours a week. It's weird and crazy to think that that should be life. Right, that that's normal. That human beings have evolved over hundreds of thousands of years to sit at a desk for 50 hours a week under fluorescent lighting. You're absolutely <laughs> right. That's weird. Yeah, I don't know if it's... For me, I think it's the... Just the realization and... Obviously, you and I come from very different places, but the realization that everybody's got a different path and no one's path is invalid. Yeah. Like, you're a tall person. I'm not a tall person. We have different experiences. You grew up in a rural environment. I grew up in an urban environment. We have different experiences. You're white and black. And just saying, okay, I understand that we have different experiences that doesn't make your experience is not valid to me is not invalid to me which i think as a minority i'm better equipped to understand because we're sort of taught to live through the majority experience but also for you like my experience is different as it may be from yours isn't invalid just because you haven't had that experience yeah and logically it's so easy to understand and i don't think i'm a particularly smart guy but i don't understand why so many people like, if it's willful ignorance, or if it's just, like, ignorant ignorance. Yeah, there is a part of me that wonders uh, if human beings will ever live in harmony without a legitimate evolutionary shift. <laughs> because there are so many things in the way that we still behave today in this modern, shiny society that are rooted in our stupid animal brain. Yeah. The side of us that evolved to be untrusting of people that were different than us because they could be a threat to our community, that it could be invaders or something. And so we, we evolved, much like other animals, to be sus suspicious of people that were not part of our pod, of our community. And now we're at a place where ability 
and everything else, especially on like a global level, leads to so many more people coming in and out of communities. Right. But we still have that dumb animal brain part of us that wants to other anybody that isn't the same as us, even though we're all at this point basically the same. Obviously there are cultural differences, but we're all the same animal still. And most people are not trying to be jerks to everyone. Right. Most people, when somebody does something and when somebody wrongs you, it's usually not on purpose. It's usually because they're unaware of how their actions are affecting you. And so most people are not going through the world trying to be a, a jerk all the time. They're just unaware. They're not paying attention. And I don't think that it's specifically willful ignorance. I think it's just people not understanding because they can't step out of their own head and see how they're interacting with the world outside of them. Again, perspective is a hard thing to have inside your own head. Right. It takes a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of thinking to get to a point. And even then, you're still going to have times where you step on somebody's toes without realizing it. That's humanity. The, yeah. The only thing that I think that you can do is chain yourself or if you're having kids or whatever chain yourself to to operate through the world in a in a gingerly fashion so that if you do step on somebody's toes you catch it before right. you've crushed their toes right. and you can be like oh eh, sorry, sorry about that yeah and instead of just lumbering through the world and lumbering through life and just kind of swinging yourself haphazardly being a bull in a china shop yeah yeah because it's also a lot harder to have a conversation with somebody after you've crushed their toes. Yeah. Yeah. But if you just kind of almost stuck, like your shoe went onto their shoe and then you realized it, you can be like, oh, I'm sorry about that. Right. But if you have just broken a toe because you stomped down on it as you walked past them, they're going to be a lot less interested yeah, in your apology you. as well. Yeah, they don't want to hear shit from you. So you've worked in the service industry for a long time, which, yeah. bless you. For one, how have you been able to do that for so long without hating everybody or breaking somebody's neck? Or, or... I mean, much like everything else, it's a really slow progression over a very long career in the service industry that, like, I was a lot angrier in my 20s. I had a lot of emotions that still needed to be understood and dealt with. And I wouldn't say that I turned 30 and that happened. I think a lot of that has been actually a pretty recent progression over the last five or six years. Frankly, I, I think I got out of a relationship that I was in for a long time and eventually, just slowly over time, started to understand my anger and my emotions that unfortunately that ex had to deal with. The lashing out and, I don't know. She would buy me a watch every year on her anniversary. And there was one year where she just recently, I think, had gotten me the watch. And then we were talking about something and I got heated and stormed out of the room. We had this futon with wooden armrests. And I slammed my hand down on that wooden futon and the watch band just busted and and exploded everywhere i felt bad then uh, but i feel worse now it's like 
she had to deal with a lot of that anger as somebody who was so close to me. And that's not fair, of course. But in the same way, when I was, I don't know, in my mid to late 20s, I punched a guy outside of a bar in the East Village. A bar that you were working at? or just... I was on the job. Oh. Um, I'm going to say he didn't have it coming. <laughs> but he was the only person in the bar, and he was drunk. And he was fine. And then a couple of regulars came in. Well, a regular who worked at a restaurant across the street came in and was meeting up with a friend that used to work at that restaurant. And they were catching up. And one of the guys was black, which was which is important for the story. Like I said, I'm not going to say the guy didn't have it coming. And he just kept butting into their conversation. And at first they entertained him. And then the black guy was like, hey, man, I'm trying to catch up with a friend that I haven't seen in a while. So if you could just... Just let us have our have our time here. Yeah. And then he still would just keep but in the guy's like, Hey, I already asked you. And I was like, dude, I need you to focus on your drink and stay over here. You're bothering them. And you're observing this from behind the bar. Yeah. Okay. And then a couple seconds later I can see his hand moving over towards them and then he just says something again and I was like, Listen, man, you you've gotta go. You clearly are not in a position where you're able to listen to anything. And so it's going to be time for you to go. And he goes, I can't believe you're kicking me out because of what this Negro has to say. And I was like, and took the beer and dumped his beer out. And I was like, it is time to go get up immediately and walk out the door. And he was like, what? what? This is bullshit. So I came around the bar and I just like grabbed him from behind and walked him to the door and just pushed him out the door and he fell about halfway in and halfway out the door and like I said I was a lot angrier and I just kicked him the rest of the way out the door and pulled the door shut. I should be laughing. Yeah I don't know I guess we all had a good laugh about it back then too but like I said I'm not gonna say the guy didn't have it coming. I like kick him out the door pull the door shut and walk over and flip the switch behind the bar that had an electromagnetic lock that would lock the door. Oh okay. And he stands up and tries the door, sees that it's locked, and then kicks it and shatters the glass on the bottom half of the door. And I just reached over the bar, unlocked the door, walked outside, and decked him. And he fell into the gutter beside a car, and I walked back into the bar, and the two guys that were in there were just looking out the window, and he was still laying down in in the gutter. And the one guy was like... I'm glad you did it at least so that I didn't have to do something and then it took the guy about 20 seconds to get up out of the gutter and there was suddenly this anxiety building inside of me of like fuck what if he doesn't get up right and then he because you're a big guy yeah and then he gets up and there's blood all over his face and he just stumbles off across the street and Two, three weeks later, all of the bartenders know about this story. The manager doesn't know about it, but all of the other bartenders have heard about what happened at this point. A couple weeks later, he is in the bar again. That's ballsy. No one else knows what he looks like. Okay. And so he's sitting at the bar, and it's a happy hour with a different bartender, and he finishes his first beer and orders a second one. He's like, yeah, the last time I was in here, I had to have six staples in my head. And the bartender was like, oh, that was you? And grabs his beer and pours it down the drain. He's like, get the, <laughs> get the fuck, fuck out. out of here. And so, yeah, anyway, I tell this story now 
And there's some aspects of it that are funny, and it is easy, I think, to love the idea of knocking out a racist at the end of the night. But I think that if we want a better and more just and compassionate and empathetic world, our first response can't be punch racist. Right. We have to find a better way to communicate and to deal with these situations. And I spent the next two or three weeks after that waiting for the cops for the to cops come to in. show up, right. And nothing ever happened somehow. I've gotten very lucky at points in my life. But I was really anxious for a little while. And that was like the beginning of me just beginning to understand that you can fight everybody that you're angry with. But you will probably do better and more succinct work if you find a more meaningful way to communicate with the people that you disagree with or the people that are wronging you. And it's very easy, like I said, to say punch racist, but even though I don't believe in God anymore, there's some things the Bible got right and an eye for an eye makes the whole world go blind. blind. Right. And it's like, if at a certain point, you're just acting out on revenge and we see what happens when when there's a, a coup and one people take over the government and the bloodier that coup is after they've taken over the government the more like the previous government they, they are, are right the right. more violent they are as well because that's how they got the power was by being violent and it's it, yeah there's so much gray <laughs> that you have to navigate and the world is just not black and white and i've just found the the path towards a better society is not through an eye for an eye or through revenge or through treating people the way they've treated you. Sure. It's through empathy and compassion. And for me, as a white male, a white cis male, that means practicing empathy and compassion towards people that have been consistently othered and learning to be better about that and more understanding and more inclusive as my life proceeds. And I think that for other people, it unfortunately often means having empathy and compassion towards people that have consistently othered you. Right. And that's hard and it sucks. But these are the unfortunate realities of trying to have a better society is that we all have to be more understanding as the aggressor or as those who have been transgressed. Yeah, no one's slate is completely clean and I'm not saying that to absolve cishet white folks, cishet white men from anything. Yeah. But we all have blind spots. There are enough grieved parties in this country, in this world. There are homophobic Jewish people, there are anti-Semitic gay people, there are black folks who don't like Asians, there are Asian folks who don't like black. But getting to the point of empathy, and I'm glad you brought that up because it's something that I try to bring up every time I talk to somebody for this podcast and even outside the podcast. And I feel like I get stuck on broken recorditis sometimes. So it's always nice to hear what I think coming out of somebody else's mouth, I guess, kind of. But it's about even 
people who are lower on the societal totem pole having empathy for other people who are lower on the societal totem pole than they are. Yeah. And the whole non-binary thing, the whole... Nothing in this world is black or white. You're born and you die. Yeah. But everything else is, is completely subjective. And I think, again, that's a really important thing to to come to realize. And I don't know that uh, whether it's through the kind of standard American education or conditioning or whatever it is, some people just never really get to that point where they realize that. Yeah. And also it's like, I want somebody to understand where my blind spots are coming from, but I can't expect somebody to want to try and understand why I have the blind spots if I'm not also trying to recognize the blind spots. Sure. And I recognize as as a cis white guy, I I more than likely have a lot more blind spots than everyone else because cis white European males have, have run things for a long time. And when you're at the top, you tend to have a lot more blind spots and you don't understand how how that has benefited you because it just always has been. And it's easy for these kids who come from a family that has been rich for generations and they get ingrained with these ideas sometimes that like they're not just there because at some point someone in their family history made a bunch of money they're there because they are genetically superior and that is horseshit and it's like, no, you just have money to make decisions right. with. Right. You, you have, have a support options. system. You yeah. have money managers. You have all of these things. By the time you're 15, <clears throat> you have an understanding of wealth that almost no one will ever have by the time they even die. And so it's the same sort of thing for myself where I have to be able to regularly look at something and be like, all right, so is this a blind spot? Is this something that I'm missing? And if so, what am I missing? How am I missing it? And I think the only way to really do that effectively is to move through the world in a gingerly fashion, to not be just slamming through everything, but allowing yourself time to see your mistakes coming and recognizing while you're doing it that your path is not the only one in your view, your life, all of this is not the only one because even when it comes to two cis white guys there's still two very different life experiences yeah. there quite possibly yeah and so the idea of saying that like my life is the only life basically means that every cis white male has had the exact same experience in life and that's not even true so if that's not true then what else isn't true right and so at a certain point, if you can ask yourself these questions and spend time thinking about it and spend time talking to friends. I mean, I've certainly stepped on some toes on these subjects over the past, well, 40 years of my life, but especially in the past like 15, 20 years because I grew up in a town of white people. But the past 20 years of being in New York in that time, I, I've stepped on friends' toes. I have a friend. She's one of my longest friends at this point in life and I used to tell her when we were at a job in the first year that she was only 5% black 
I've um, heard that before. Exactly. Yeah. And at the time, I thought it was a harmless, funny joke. Right. And, and it wasn't until several years later that I really started to understand that if your skin isn't fucking pasty, you're 100% black. That's right. It just doesn't even matter because that's the only way you're seen. Like, for myself, I've always dealt with weight problems and, and whatnot, and I used to weigh a lot more. But in general, I walk into a room and the first thing people see is my size. It, it doesn't matter, like, if I see myself as skinny. Right. I walk into a room and that's the first thing everybody sees is how giant of a person I am. And it's a similar thing. I mean, I'm making, like, not the best comparison here, but it's a similar thing where it's like, if you got a little bit of melanin, you are that's black. That's the first thing. Yeah. And that's just it. Because that's the first thing that people will see you when you walk into yeah. a room. They're not going to say... Oh, well, they're like light-skinned, mixed race. And because of that, that's the way you're always seen. It's going to come into play in often some really unfortunately sad ways. And so it definitely made my more than my fair share of mistakes over the years. But the goal is always to learn right. from the mistakes and I don't think I was doing as much of that in my 20s as I slowly started doing in my 30s. And it's been a long journey, And but I'm here now and I'm perfect. So. Totally perfect. <laughs> Completely perfect. I've Go done me. all of the work and right. I'm now a perfect now human perfect being. Person. I have no more progressing to do. I have achieved total enlightenment. You've read some books. <laughs> you've interacted with minorities. And you are now, you've graduated. Here's your diploma. Exactly. You mentioned in our, in the lead up to this conversation, and even at the beginning of this particular conversation, some kind of depression that manifested probably, you'd say like five or so years ago. Yeah. Was that the breakup thing? Or? Well, I think that my whole life, I've always trended towards melancholy. I That's think... why you're a musician. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's really happy, well-adjusted people out there writing music, but I don't know who they are and mm -hmm. i'm not even entirely sure i want to listen to their music but <laughs> but i do appreciate that they're able to do it in that same respect i feel like there are people who spend their whole life in the clouds and when they get down to the surface is when it, 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 this is a bad day and i feel like for myself i've spent most of my life treading water and just trying not to get too far below the surface i think i spent the majority of my 30s so far below the surface that I just wasn't even sure that there was sunlight anymore. Wow. How did that manifest itself? Well, a lot of self-medicating. An excess of, of drugs and alcohol and eating too much. I mean, I think at my worst, I was around probably like 370 pounds. I was incredibly sad and spent a lot of time just thinking, what is the point? in any of this. Why even bother? Why be here? A lot of suicidal thought. And I, I went to a therapist for a few years because basically my ex was like, you, you got to do this. And I was like, okay. And so I went to the therapist and honestly, that wasn't even really the beginning of me turning around. I mean, it, it was, but in a really minor way Okay. because I was still living the same life. And eventually that therapist, and I didn't even know this could happen, but that therapist dropped me. Oh, because wow. I was constantly skipping, I was constantly canceling my sessions the morning of 
because I was always hung over and didn't feel like getting out of bed and going to it. And he finally was just like, listen, if you decide that you want to get serious about this, we can do this, but I can't keep doing this anymore. That's a first. I have actually never yeah. heard of a therapist talking I, to a client before. I'd never heard of it before either. I'm not even sure if it's something that you're supposed to do. I don't <laughs> know anything about it. But then my ex and I split up and there was a particularly dark period after that where like I actually stopped drinking for a little while because every time I'd go out drinking I would turn into a shit-faced sorority girl in the corner and so I had to just stop drinking because being drunk was a really bad thing for a little bit but I still just kind of like kept living life I like backed off on the hard drugs but was still drinking a lot of alcohol, but was also kind of slowly drinking less alcohol. And then I got to a point about three years ago where there had been like a slow progression of other things, but getting better in certain ways or at least how I interacted with people and went through the world. But then about three years ago, I was behind the bar and I I made a joke to the random customer that was like, well, I mean, there is no retirement in late-term capitalism. You just work until you die or you drive your car off a cliff or something. Mm. (laughs) He was like, Jesus, man, are you okay? (laughs) I mean, that's dark. I feel like that says a lot about my own mental state where I was like, okay, I totally understand that. And I wasn't like, whoa. Well, the thing is, I still don't think I was wrong. But yeah, I can't say that I think you're uh, wrong either. And it is dark, but I don't think it's not real. Right. I think that it is basically the reality for so many people. And it's only getting worse yeah. is the problem. But in that moment, I was like, I'm not okay. I'm really not. And I hated myself so much. So much. And a couple months later, I went through another breakup. This was a much briefer relationship. And as that was kind of falling apart, I was just in this place where I was like, I feel like my 20s was all about winning. I signed a record contract, put out an album, put another album out a few years later, but I just feel like my 30s have been lost. Just losing the depression, this is just not working. And so I just started waking up every day and I've heard a lot about this over the years but you just try and create small habits to give yourself this wild it's so stupid but this endorphin rush you feel good about yourself you take 30 seconds and you make your bed and you feel good about yourself because you did something right you did almost nothing but you actually did something something Right. And having actually done something to start your day off already sets you on this trajectory of having done something. And so I just started slowly trying to create habits. Climb the stairs in my building once a day. I live on the ground floor, but there's seven flights up to the roof. And I'd climb the flight of stairs. I started walking to work, which was maybe 35, 40 minutes sometimes, depending on the bar I was working at. I started telling myself when my brain would be like, we'll do that tomorrow, or I'll do that later. I was like, you'll do it now, motherfucker. (laughs) Just grab the glass, take it to the sink, don't leave it on the table. And and I just kept saying, I'm just tired of hating myself. 
I'm tired of being so far down this hole. And I just started slowly over the course of several months. I honestly, it was probably five month progression of just doing this work and trying to claw myself out and just get back up to the surface. And it's still work. I mean, like I said, I, f- I feel like most of the time I'm just treading water. Come I'm on, just Luca, trying not to. You were perfect. Yeah, <laughs> I wish. But yeah, it's work. And it's always work, and it doesn't stop being work. And for some people, I don't know what happened to them as a kid, but it's not what happened to me as a kid. And I, I'm always treading water. And I got the occasional time where I take flight, and it's really wonderful. But I'll take treading water to, to sink it yeah. any day of the week. Yeah, man. But it's just like anything. Being in a relationship is not just like you get in and then like, cool. This is great. Done it. Be, Locked it up. It's going to be great forever. Yeah. No, you always have to make decisions to prioritize that relationship if you want to keep it around. And it's the same sort of thing. If you want to keep happiness around, you're going to have to make decisions. And sometimes you you won't. And sometimes you will and it, it'll be work and you have to force yourself to do it. But, like, I mean, I, I woke up yesterday hungover after hanging out with friends and having a really good time. And I was going to meet some of the same people for brunch yesterday because they were just friends in town and what I wanted to do was just put shoes on and walk out the door (laughs) but I was like I'm gonna go take a shower because I know I will feel better afterwards yeah watch the hangover funk off you yeah but the thing about depression as an institution inside of you is that even when it's not necessarily a, a decision being made in or out of depression it just always is like yeah but nothing matters man right you don't need a shower. You can just toss a hat on and get going. And you just have to get better at saying to yourself, no, I'm going to take the shower. And I'm really, I'm still not great at it. I mean. You don't, you don't smell bad. Yeah. No, but there's other things I'm great at. And being great at staving off depression isn't one of them. But it, I've gotten better at at least keeping it at bay. It really is, I think, something that people who don't experience depression don't understand about being depressed is that it will affect every single part of your life and it's like you wake up in the morning and you have to negotiate to get out of bed you got to negotiate to take a shower you got to negotiate to eat breakfast you got to negotiate to put on fresh clothes it's one of those things where the insidiousness of it just manifests itself in ways that some people who do not experience depression are just like, well, of course you get up in the morning and you take a shower. And when you're depressed, it feels like actual work. It's yeah. not. And and the truth of it is, is that once you're in the shower, everything's gravy. Yeah. You get out of the shower, you feel good. Yeah. But looking at the shower from a distance is it can feel daunting like mount everest yeah it just feels like such unnecessary work but then you're in there and you're like actually it's pretty fucking nice in here yeah yeah exactly (laughs) but it's so hard often to see to see how things are actually going to be everything is just work everything is just a chore self-care is a chore Chore. yeah i get it so at this point in your life what brings you the most happiness? What is, like, one thing or two things that, like, gives you... is like an instant injection of yeah. happy feels. Two things. One is I like making things. 
as I said earlier, I, I like making things, whether it's writing music or building things out of wood or whatever. Like I like making things. And two, I like hanging out with friends. I've said it a lot that, I mean, it's kind of a more recent joke in my life, but partying is my natural habitat. <laughs> you are a very like outgoing <laughs> Yeah. And so I have a backyard and it's set up and I like having people over and just sitting in the backyard and having drinks and just hanging out all night until the cows come home. And I like throwing big parties. I like having four or five people over. I like having 60 people over. I don't want to have 60 people over all the time because there's a lot of prep that goes into a party like that and, and cleanup and whatnot. But I love throwing a party and making sure that everybody there walks away from the party going, that was a good party. I had a great time. Here's a question. And I wonder this for myself too. As an organizer, as someone that has events and throws parties and shit, do you ever feel like your enjoyment of the event kind of gets lost because you're trying to make sure everybody else is having a good time? Sometimes it just depends. If things are like, like I I throw a big fourth of july party every year and the year before the pandemic was overwhelming it was too much and there were too many people that i'd never seen before there there's always this thing because people are showing up and then eventually i'm on the grill and i'm on the grill for a while and then after that like there's usually an america themed costume contest just because i think it's hilarious to see what people do with a prompt that loose like huh one year Two guys showed up. One was dressed as Melania Trump and the other one was dressed as Jesus Christ. And so it's it's a pretty loose theme and I just think it's fun for people to be ridiculous and possibly just be taking the piss out of America while they're doing this. So there's costume contest thing and and then it's pushing time to go to the roof for the fireworks. And so I've really come to this place where what I really like is everybody goes up to the roof and I can take that time to clean up plates and cans and get everything cleaned up a bit because I don't like cleaning up around people because then they feel like it's time to leave. Leave, yeah. And so I can just do one big fell swoop of cleaning and get things like a little bit reset. And after the fireworks, a lot of people will leave and go elsewhere, but you'll be left with 20 or 30 people left. And I don't have any more responsibilities, so this is the time where I'm really going to get to hang out. And that year, there were so many random people, and after the fireworks, almost everybody left, and there was like five of us left, and I was just like, this was the worst 4th of July party that I've ever thrown. Really though, I don't find it to be so bad. And when working the grill, I've still got time to talk to people and whatnot. And so, yeah, I mean, maybe if I was organizing really massive events, it would be hard to ever really enjoy them, and at that point, you're really just there to run this. Right, you're there to work. But I do find, though, that most of the time I can find a way to still enjoy it. And I also do, I enjoy providing this party. I enjoy going through it and making sure that everybody has what they need, that nobody is wanting for anything, so that they can just simply focus on having a good time. Because the two things you need for a good party are good people and to make sure that they don't need anything. Yeah. And they will just sit and talk to each other and enjoy themselves and the next morning they will wake up and say that was awesome i had an amazing fucking time yeah i wonder if that comes from being part of a big family that just that propensity to want to cultivate people circles it might i don't know i I haven't really thought about necessarily exactly where it comes from but when i'm throwing a party nothing else exists 
my bank account doesn't exist. <laughs> See? Like, just nothing exists because it's just like if we get to a point and we got 15, 20 people left and there's like five beers in the bucket, I'm like, I'm just going to go to the store and grab a couple of 12 Pieces packs of beer, and yeah. come back. I want people to enjoy themselves. So, yeah, I, I haven't thought a lot, though, what the impetus for my party hosting love fully is. It's probably even somewhere rooted in new york i i could see too where like in the beginning i didn't necessarily fully know what i was doing when i started throwing parties in this apartment but i was just inviting all these great people that i knew and they took it from there and there was probably a little bit of ego involved where people are like you throw great parties sure and i even back then i told them, i was like i just invite great people it, like, re it really is it's all about who is there you could have all the shit in the world. You could have fucking strippers and a fucking light show and yeah. a DJ and all that shit. And if the people there aren't cool people, if they don't get along, if there's not a chemistry, it's not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. Because you could walk into a club or a bar and look around and be like, I don't like these fucking people. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter how good the bar is. It's always about the vibe. Yeah. And no matter how good your DJ is or anything, no matter how good your DJ or your bartenders are, the vibe is always... The people. Yeah. It's always whoever's there hanging out. You're absolutely right. So I got to ask one more question. You and your brothers all close? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I live with my youngest brother and he, like him and I are very close, but we all talk with some frequency. I don't talk on the phone. I don't like talking on the phone. Thank you. Uh, this <laughs> conversation goes, I like you more and more. But we do have a text chain. At one point, one of my brothers, who's very tech oriented even set up slack for us but i think the older brothers had a harder time with slack dealing with yeah. it especially my oldest brother they end up sending texts as well or didn't check the app very often it was really easy for me at the time because i was using it at a restaurant that i worked at and so it was like this is great it's all right here but i don't think that they were using it for work or anything like that and so they probably had the app buried somewhere in their phone yeah. and but we've always got like a text chain where we'll send out a funny video or a meme or something or have a conversation about what we're going to get our parents for christmas or all that kind of stuff so we do talk and when we descend upon my parents house generally it's a good time it's gotten it's gotten better over the years because again as we've all gotten older and for the most part we're just like none of this shit matters suck it up and have a good time. Oh, yeah. There might be button heads with my mom or something like that. And it's just like, just move on. It doesn't matter. But even then, 15 years ago, I'd go home and there'd inevitably be some big explosion between myself and my mom or like me or me and one of my brothers or one of my brothers and my mom, like whatever. There'd be something I feel like every Christmas. But I think we've all kind of gotten better and also recognize that in general, most of these things are just not worth. And then also some of us that were the more ragey emotional suppressors have done work on ourselves to be less explosive and to let things wash off our backs and just not care about it. Yeah, I was going to ask, has the enlightenment spread throughout or? For the most part. Like calling anybody out <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i i do think that a lot of us have spent time on a 
on a psychiatrist's couch, a psychologist's couch. I mean, I did spend a little bit of time on a psychiatrist's couch, but that's just because like somebody had to give me drugs at once. Sure. <laughs> yes. Yep. But we've all spent time on a therapist's couch, and or most of us have at least, and it's certainly for the better, and it's helped us. I mean, even like my relationship with my younger brother. I'm a, a big personality, and sometimes. I steamroll people and my little brother of course a being my little brother and having always kind of been in that position and then B now especially being my roommate he's gotten a lot better at taking up space in our relationship and he'll tell me just in the interest of getting this off my chest so that it doesn't stew I need to tell you this and that's usually the way it goes I don't usually have problems with him. He's incredibly easy to get along with. That's also great communication, though. And someone's like, hey, look, I gotta. that's the way relationships, loving relationships should work. Like, hey, this is bothering me. I'm going to tell it to you now so it doesn't fucking come out in an odd-ass way six yeah. weeks from now. Yeah, I mean, somebody at a party on New Year's Eve asked us, like a friend of ours was like, so do you guys ever fight? And we're like, no. No. So, like, yelling at each other? And we're like, No. I mean, I, okay, I think we've got a, a different description of fighting. When my brother and fight, it's usually a pretty level-headed conversation. And by the end of it, we have come to terms and an agreement and an understanding. It's not raised voices. I think that we're both uh, pretty rational and logical people. And it has led to us navigating our relationship in a a pretty straightforward way by this point in our lives and so it's pretty healthy eventually i'm sure that we're not going to live together forever and i'm going to have to find a worse roommate oh. <laughs> i mean you know enjoy it while you got it <laughs> yeah exactly I, I could probably do a whole podcast on bad roommate stories so <laughs> yeah the fact that you live with somebody you yeah. enjoy and that they're related to you yeah i don't think that i've ever been somebody's like worst roommate story but I I'm not entirely sure that I, I've probably been a, a mediocre roommate at least to some people and done some things at times that really annoyed them I mean what um, is your what do you think is the worst thing that you've done as a roommate to somebody oh I just think that I think that it's like I said especially in my 20s there was just a lot of like not really I, I don't know. I, I just wasn't a very good adult. And I think that, again, speaking to that one ex that I lived with for years, I think there was a lot of things that she had to deal with because of my inability to to behave in a more mature fashion. I mean, I still think like there's aspects of me that I'm perfectly okay with them being uh, because I think that that's where the creativity is based right. and it's where the fun is and I think that we try and beat all of the creativity out of children without thinking about it because we're like, no, no, you got to learn to be an adult or right. whatever and in doing so we crush a lot of the things in them that would make them, I think to some extent, enjoy life more. I agree with you. But at the same time, there are some things that you need to to work on, and emotions is one of them. The second, <laughs> I think, is just understanding that you're not the only person that lives there. You need to be conscious of other people's space, and I'm still not always. 
great at being conscious of other people's space. space but trying to be better it's ongoing man it's <laughs> exactly. a process yeah it's a fucking process as much as i would like to say i'm perfect i i definitely cannot <laughs> nope nobody's if anyone says that they're perfect they are it's like i say about people who say they don't need a therapist like if you say you don't need a therapist you really really fucking need a therapist more than likely yeah you say you're perfect you are probably as far from perfect as anyone is yeah so you gotta own your work in progressness yeah yeah I do <laughs> I have no choice it's mine there's something to be said for owning your work in progress a lot of us are trying to be better people myself included and uh, you can't discount the progress that you've made uh, nor should you stop trying to make progress I mean it's it's infinite right so I appreciate Luke for being honest and open and talking about the work that he's done and is still doing. Uh, if you want to know more about Luke, you can go to LukeWesley.com. You can also find him on Instagram and on Twitter at LukeWesleyMusic. Once again, that is LukeWesleyMusic. Thanks again, Luke. Appreciate it. Hope to bring you back for a second chat. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as DetoxPodGuy. Uh, you can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, rate, comment, help a brother out. Uh, help us move up in the rankings. Uh, follow me on social media. Like I said, uh, follow our Patreon or subscribe to my Patreon, actually. Patreon.com slash detoxicity pod you get access to exclusive episodes you get episodes a little earlier than the general public you get a cool ass sticker lots of stuff once again patreon.com slash detoxicity pod quick shout out to calvin williams for providing the music and uh doing his magic on the logo which was originally designed by jacob block i thank you all for listening i wish you all the best please take care of each other till next time peace <laughs>